were to ask you to name the best city in the world. Many of us, I think, would probably choose London. And a lot about London that's remarkable and unique. But if I were to ask that question, I wouldn't choose London. I would choose the city of Rome. Rome has atmosphere, has history, has food, has culture, has art, has romance. (laughs) I think once you've been to Rome, you fall in love with the eternal city, as it is called. For me, it has to be the best city in the world. And arriving in Rome, the best way, I would say, to arrive in the city of Rome has to be by train. Uh, get the train from Switzerland, from Zurich. It travels via Lake Como. And you arrive right in the heart of the city in Rome, Termini, in that station right in the heart of Rome. Uh, we arrived there a number of years ago. And um, in the station, we found this little small uh, kiosk that served wonderful coffee and very tempting patisserie. I queued up. And in my very best Italian, uh, I ordered uh, some cakes, some coffee. The baristas ignored me totally. The baristas just completely ignored me and carried on serving other people. Um, I was very offended, of course. They, t- they carried on serving the other commu- the people who were commuters and didn't serve any tourists like me. I realized it was a kiosk for Italian commuters, not for tourists. Um, so I thought, what am I going to do? Those, those cakes were speaking to me. And uh, so I scratched my head and I remembered my Italian friends here in London and uh, their love of children. And at that stage, my, my boys were much younger. And so I sent Matthew, my youngest son, um, to queue up. As soon as he got to the front of the queue, bambino, bambino, the cry <laughs> went, went up. And uh, sure enough, he came back with some cakes and some coffee. My plan worked. I got my patisserie. Now, something else arrived in Rome 2,000 years before me that's relevant to our Christmas story this morning. One of the books of the Bible arrived in Rome. Remember that the Bible is a, is a library of 66 books. And the book we're interested in today isn't the book of Romans, it's the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is thought to have arrived in Rome about the year 63. We're going to find Christmas in the book of Hebrews. The New Testament book of Hebrews doesn't say who the intended audience is, but it's widely thought by scholars by commentators to be the church in Rome. That was going through a tough time. We're going to find how the Christmas story leaps out of the book of the Bible to speak to our lives today. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your word is living, it's active. Thank you the Christmas story is relevant, powerful to our lives today. And we're asking, Lord, would you speak? Would you speak so powerfully, powerfully, powerfully this morning into our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to tell you a story. Everyone likes a story. I'm going to tell you the story of someone called Andronicus. Andronicus was a young Christian living in Rome. And um, he was uh, going to provide a context for understanding the arrival of this special letter 
of Hebrews. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. I will begin. Adronicus sat alone in a second-story flat in a slum area of Rome. As the rain pelted on the wall outside, he stared at a plate of vegetables and bread, a cup of sour wine that were his meal that night. Noises distracted him from the street below as a unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven under the sharp orders of its commander. Adronicus sat alone thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly man named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruit and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become annoying as mosquitoes dancing, darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Abdronicus cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. But each time he turned the other cheek, he bit his lip and nursed his wounded pride, again asking the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. When Andronicus became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. And now he spent his days sorting rotten fruit, sweeping the floor and receiving orders from Roman slaves. Sometimes he stooped so low as to take rotten fruit home to supplement his meagre food supply. Persecution of the church in Rome had started to get worse since the expulsion of the Jews under Emperor Claudius some 15 years ago. The Christians have continued to be harassed to various degrees by both Jews and pagans. When the expulsion of the Jews from Rome happened, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings and seizure of their property. Andronicus had not been part of the church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. He was only 17 when he had converted to Christianity and in recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the approval of the emperor himself. And now the emotional fatigue was taking its toll. He'd been told about the cost of following Jesus, but somehow the experience was different than he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He'd been taught taught about the Lord, the righteous judge, how he would vindicate his new covenant people. Did not the scripture speak of Messiah, saying that God would put all things under subjection under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for help, and some in their disillusionment doubted and had started to drift away from God. Andronicus missed the weekly home group meal and worship in the past two weeks. His heart had cooled against the little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him against backsliding from loving God. Andronicus' bitterness over his current circumstances was growing He was struggling. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumour had it that the leaders had received a letter from back east. Low, discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again. But curiosity was aroused by this new letter and he decided to travel the short distance to to the home group. As he entered the room, the hostess offered something to drink. When the meal was finished, the home group leader, a good and godly man of 70 years, arrived. Joseph, the leader, was a bit out of breath. 
He'd come from a meeting with other leaders across the city. He was visibly moved. He stood smiling before the group of about 20 people. His hands were shaking from advancing age. After a few words of introduction, he took a deep breath. With a twinkle in his eye, he said, I believe you will find this quite helpful. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Joseph was reading from what we call the book of Hebrews. Joseph kept on reading that night. Now, I've just read to you an imagined account of the book of Hebrews arriving in Rome, but very probably the uh, kind of a reception it received. The house church in Rome was greatly encouraged by hearing the message of Hebrews that night, just what they needed to hear. The message transformed our friend Andronicus as he heard it read. And I pray too, we, we will be encouraged as we look at the same book this morning. Did you find Christmas in that verse that we heard read out? I'll read it again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. See, that first verse sums up the whole of the Old Testament. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. The 39 books of the Old Testament was God speaking many times, speaking through the mouthpieces of the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Moses. God was speaking, expressing many things God wanted to say to his people. It was a preparation. But verse 2 says, in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. In these last days, we live in that time frame of history God calls the last days. An exciting time where he's come in person. In other words, we found Christmas in the book of Hebrews. And Christmas is about God speaking to us in a son. So if that's true... If Christmas is about God speaking in a son, what is God saying? Well, the next few books, next few verses in the book of Hebrews tells us. And so let's read them together. Verse two. But in the last days, God was speaking to us in in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This shows that the son is far greater than. Now I'm stopped right in the middle of a verse there because the son is far greater than many things which we're going to see later. The book of Hebrews starts this incredible explanation packed into two verses showing us all that Jesus is and what he's done. What I'd like to do this morning is I want to hold these verses up to the light, as it were, as though they were a jewel. 
And there's seven things here, and just to, like they're a jewel, and ask that the Holy Spirit would let them sparkle in our hearts, that we would see a little bit this morning about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The passage starts with this phrase, the Son is the heir of all things. Straight away, Jesus is introduced as the most important focus of all things. Like the eldest son in an ancient culture who inherits everything from the father. Jesus is the heir of everything. It's all for him. Straight away, we realize the importance of this Christmas baby that God has sent. It's all for him. Jesus is placed right as center stage. The first thing God wants to say about his son is intended to grab our attention. First thing, it's an incredible challenge. And our only response is to give Jesus that center place in our life. The very first thing Jesus, the, the, the writer wants us to see is that he wants us to make sure in my life, in your life, that Jesus has that center place. The very first thing right off in this passage he wants us to see is this Christmas baby wants the center place in my life. That nothing else, no one else and nothing else is to compete with this Christmas baby. And so for some of us this morning, the one thing that God wants you to take away from here, the one thing that you've come this morning to hear is that Jesus wants that first place, that central place. That nothing else and no one else is to compete with Jesus today. And so your takeaway today, as you leave this place, is to clear everything, clear everyone else out, that only Jesus would have that one place this Christmas time, that center place, right in the heart of your life today. The next phrase in this passage, God created the universe through his son. Often the baby Jesus is portrayed at Christmas time um, as a baby in a stable um, beneath a starry sky. You see a lot of Christmas cars, a lot of images at Christmas time. He's portrayed this way. And if you go out into the countryside, not in London because there's too much light pollution, but if you go out into the, into the countryside and you look up into a beautiful, clear, starry sky, you'll see a band of stars overhead, which is the galaxy that we're a part of, the Milky Way galaxy. So you look up overhead. And in that, that incredible thing to think about, as you look up ahead, you're looking at a band of stars, a 100,000 million stars that are above your head. And the incredible thing to think about is that that same band of stars would have been above Jesus' head. That as he lay in that stable, as he, as he let that baby Jesus lay in the stable, that same band of stars would have been above his head. The miracle of Christmas is that we gaze into the crib, we see the creator lying in that bed of straw, and then as we look up Above his head, we see the galaxy that, ma- that he made. Christmas stops us in our tracks. We think, how is it possible for the creator God to become a baby? Scripture explains the miracle of the incarnation. 
One of the things about Christmas is, is that it, it brings us to, uh, home to us perhaps the biggest miracle of all, the miracle of the incarnation, that the infinite God, the infinite God should choose a moment in history to enter into humanity. That the Holy Spirit should hover over, should overshadow Mary, should conceive in her the perfect human, this greatest miracle that a baby would be 100% God and 100% human to become 100% Jesus. What a miracle! So that God could fully experience human, human struggle, that God could fully experience 100% suffering for your sake. So as we look into the crib this Christmas, we see a baby that's a miracle. God's, God is speaking to us. If God's speaking to us this Christmas time, what's he saying? If God's speaking to us, what's he saying to me? What's he saying to you? The next, the next thing in this passage, as we continue this, the, the, the author continues this passage, he says that he uses two word pictures to tell us something more about the baby. And he tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And he uses two word pictures. And the first one here is, the, is that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And he, he describes the brilliance of the light coming off the sun. And of course, it's impossible to tell the difference between the light rays coming off the sun and the sun itself. Because the sun shines so brightly. If you look, as you look up at the sun, you can't tell the difference between the rays and the sun itself. In the same way, you can't tell the difference between the Father and the Son. Because Jesus is the perfect revelation of who God is, the perfect revelation of God's nature and God's character. So to know Jesus is to know God. And then the, the writer continues with another word picture to underline, underline the same point so we really get the message. He says he's the exact representation of God. And he uses the word picture of a stamp and some wax. And so just as the stamp has got an image on it that makes a picture in some wax, it's identical, the stamp and the wax. So Jesus is not a mere messenger from God, but fully God himself. Remember Jesus said, remember the the disciples came to Jesus and they said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, for some of us this morning, if we've lost something of the wonder and awe of the person of Jesus, then we can come fresh to Jesus today and we can know something of the awe, the wonder of what it means to know God as we come close to Jesus. Jesus reveals to us what it means to know the Father, what it means to us to know God as we get close to Jesus. Just this morning as I was spending some time with with God, as I was just waiting on God, that, that phrase, that phrase where Jesus said, he is the vine and I am the branch. I was just meditating on that and just waiting, just waiting on God. What a wonderful revelation. What a wonderful invitation from God. Jesus, Jesus is inviting us that he's joined us to him and through the, the amazing blessing of being joined to him, we can be joined to God. We can know God. We can experience God. And this morning, we've got that wonderful experience of freshly coming to him, being joined to him, knowing him 
in that way being joined to God. What a wonderful invitation. Anyone recognize this image, this next image? It's a fuzzy image. It was taken last year. It's, in fact, it's a supermassive black hole. And it's, it's the black hole at the center of our galaxy, of the Milky Way galaxy. And um, our solar system uh, orbits this supermassive black hole at an incredible speed, half a million miles an hour. We whiz round, we orbit this black hole on this lump of rock called Earth. Astronomers discover more and more about this incredible universe we live in, and we marvel and we praise God for his creation. And the passage in Hebrews tells us that Jesus sustains the universe by the power of his word. By the power of his word. Jesus' power sustains this incredible universe that we inhabit. Jesus' word is so powerful it holds together black holes and galaxies. And yet this same word speaks into my heart to direct me, to lead me, to comfort me, and to encourage me. My point is this, that we can trust Jesus' word. His word is so powerful, it sustains galaxies. How much more can we trust his word as he speaks? As this morning Jesus speaks his word into your heart, you can trust him. His word is so powerful. His word is so powerful that he sustains His word is so powerful, he speaks. This morning, can we trust him? Yes, we can trust him. What is he saying today? Jesus, what are you saying today to me? God, I can trust you. Jesus, I can trust you. I can trust you. Here we are clinging to this rock, hurtling through space. Jesus, I can trust you. This passage finishes. The writer tells us that Jesus made purification for sins. Summing up his role as saviour is the one who died on the cross in my place. That my sins can be forgiven. That I can be purified. I can stand in right relationship with God. You know, the book of Hebrews spends many chapters explaining that my sins were a great problem. Separating me from eternity for with God. And that's why... Jesus, God sent this Christmas, uh, Christmas time, God sent his son. God's gone to great lengths to put right my pro- the problem of my sins. And the Christmas angel announced to the shepherds, I bring you good news that your sins can be forgiven, that your sins can be purified, that I can be washed, that I can be cleansed, that I can be purified for my sins. Sins make a whole lot of mess in my life, in your life. They make a lot of mess. I can be purified. I can be cleansed. I can be washed. Sins make mess and we can be wonderfully, wonderfully purified. It's a wonderful Christmas message. It's a wonderful message today as we're heading up towards Christmas. That I can be pure, I can be washed, I can become cleansed. This Christmas time I can know that cleansing.
I can be refreshed. For some of us today, it's great to know. We've known it before, and maybe we need to know it afresh today. To be freshly just cleansed from my sins. God, thank you. Thank you so much. This morning I can be cleansed afresh from my sin. Thank you so much. Do you know, I remember the very first Christmas after I became a Christian. I remember sitting in church and singing those carols. And what struck me was the, how those words were so fresh and vibrant and they meant so much. It was like they were alive. I was new. It was fresh. And we can have that freshness, that cleansing afresh again and again. God, can I, can I be cleansed afresh from my sins? The passage concludes with the last piece of the jigsaw. The writer wants us to see that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God, shares this throne and um, with God himself. You know, one of the gifts of the wise men was frankincense, this fragrance that represents worship. The Christmas baby, of course, was crucified and then ascended and is now sat at the throne of God himself. A short way into the book of Hebrews, we read, read this in, in Hebrews chapter 4. We can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so we can receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. There, there can be very few verses more comforting, more powerful, more wonderful than this verse in chapter 4. We can with confidence draw near to this throne where Jesus is sat, that we can receive mercy, we can find grace to help us in time of need. We're invited to approach. We're invited to approach. So as we finish this morning, verse 4 of this passage we've been looking at in the beginning of Hebrews, it says Jesus is far greater than. And the reason I stopped that verse just halfway through is that the writer of Hebrews takes goes through the book of Hebrews showing us that Jesus is far greater than many things. He shows us that he's far greater than angels, far greater than Moses. He's a better high priest. He's a greater sacrifice, induces a great, better covenant, better hope, better rest. Jesus is better. He's the one. He's the one to come back to again and again and again. And if we're tempted to go and look elsewhere for any help, he's the one to come to. This morning, can I encourage you? Let's come fully, wholeheartedly. Jesus, you're the one. Jesus, you are the one. You're the one that's going to help me. You're the one that's going to help me. Whatever we face, whatever we face this Christmas, and whatever we're going to face, Jesus is the one. Whatever our practical issues, situations, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. He's better. He's far better. Let's close our eyes this morning. Let's close our eyes. Jesus, thank you so much. Oh God, thank you that we've taken a look at you this morning. And as we've seen, as we've seen in that book, your book of Hebrews, you're the one that is, Lord, you're the one that's so better. 
so much better. Thank you. Wonderful Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I want to really encourage you this morning that you, as a follower of Jesus, are connected to the vine. To Jesus, in other words. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. That he's taken you and he has connected you to him. Jesus has taken you and put you in that relationship with him that you are made right with him that you can know him experience him